episode 129, Retirement and Investments 101. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, and today, we're Jason Rainier's perspective. Join 2017 and 2018 Podcast Awards nominated host as we get a behind-the-curtain look at all types of doctors and guest specialties. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. Well, I sure hope everyone is having a fantastic July 4th weekend. Where you going? To the beach? Are you barbecuing? Staying local? I'm excited for you. I hope you're really uh, maximizing these mandatory vacation days. That's how I look at it sometimes. For those who leave a review, I really want to appreciate it. It's very motivating. If you've been thinking about it, if you've gotten something good out of this, leave us a review. doesn't matter where. Google device, Apple. I really appreciate it when you do that. If you can, there's two sites you might want to look at. The doctorsperspective.net slash question is just a basic question, one question, and kind of helps me know what to do more with the podcast. I mentioned a few times, let me know what you think about these mini-sodes. Should I continue them? Uh, if you have an episode that you listen to that you like, definitely uh, shoot me a message and I can listen to it and give, me my, give everyone else the summary because you thought it was that awesome. I'm very happy to do that for you. And I'll even quote you. Lastly, uh, the revamped known acupuncture is still there. .net slash bundle packs. If you want to check it out, that'd be great. And on, I'm excited, Instagram, over 14,000 followers. Thank you so much for being a fan and giving me the motivation to keep on doing these, talking to new people. Really appreciate you and for, your, for what you do. So hope you're having a great July 4th weekend if you listen to it during that time frame. Next up, we're on the second week of the financial series. I hope last week you learned a bunch about student loans, different options. I sure didn't know about that expat thing. That's kind of cool. If you don't know what I'm talking about, let's go back and listen. Uh, .net slash 128. Well, on this week's episode, though, we have all things retirement and investment. We're going to cover, you know, 401ks, SEP IRAs for those self-employed, 529B education funds, FSAs, trust, estates, taxes, wills, index fund versus a managed funds, life insurance a little bit at the end. One thing I'm going to do for this episode that I haven't really done in the past is I'm going to actually give you a, a time where we'll start talking about each thing. Because you might be like, look, I already know about 401ks. Don't bore me. I want to know about trust and estate taxes. Cool. You'll know where to go. I'm not sure how to put timestamps where if you click it, it goes directly to that. So don't expect that, but you'll be able to just scan it yourself. So that's really cool. It's a nice long episode. Like That's why I put those because there's just so much information. All the show notes can be found at a doctor's perspective slash 129 as well as the transcript. On this episode, we do have to give a disclaimer. So I'm going to speed it up, but here is the disclaimer. Jason Rainier is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corp., a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor offering insurance offered through Lincoln Affiliates and other fine companies. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corp. and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances. There we go. As I always say, and we should say in these episodes, we're not your accountant, we're not your lawyer, we're not your CPA. We're just giving you information so that you can follow up with somebody that you trust on your end. Okay? Now... Let's go hashtag behind the curtain. Live from China in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, today on the show, we have a CFP, a certified financial planner with Sagemark Consulting for almost 10 years. Uh, he assists families that are looking to grow their wealth and their retirement and beyond. Uh, talking about accumulation, preservation, and the ultimate transfer of their wealth. You know, he has a, a thing. Every dollar under his care has a family attached to it. You got to know what you're doing and do it with the highest integrity. And that's what our guest today, Jason Rainier, is all about. Thank you so much for being on the show. 
Uh, no problem, no problem. Well, let's start with an icebreaker today. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. So my wife, as you already know, thinks she looked like Captain America. <laughs> and we're in Avengers, the last one that just came out. And uh, he pops on the screen and goes, hey, that looks like your buddy in Baton Rouge. I was like, yeah, you said that. But one thing she never told you. But remember, it's, it's the pre, before he got big. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh no. JJ. Man, I can't believe it. <laughs> At least he's handsome. I yeah. said, you know, always a handsome man. But this guy, he, he's actually in uh, powerlifting. He used to be a runner. You know, now he's a kind of powerlifter. So, you know, maybe he's an in-between, guys. Anyway, I thought that was really funny. I was like, JJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell her all over too. Yeah, exactly, right? So as you can tell, we're friendly. We actually went to, we've been on each other for, man, a long time, ever since LSU. Sometimes you just, you find friends that can stick with you and you make an effort and they can last for, wow, almost 20 years. What? That's, yeah, that's a really long time now. I know, because I can remember being like tw 18 or 19 and seeing 25-year-olds and thinking, man, they're old. <laughs> well, and even our friends are almost 30 thinking they were ancient. Yeah, I don't feel that old. I really don't, but I mean, I'm sure my cousin thinks so. <laughs> yeah, my kids think anything over nine or ten years old is just, you know, dinosaurs were running around on the earth back then. <laughs> yeah, don't ask a kid how old you think they are, <laughs> or the opposite. They'll be honest. They thought I was 100 at one point. <laughs> <laughs> That's so messed up. <laughs> oh, man. Well... Let's jump in. We, we just had the previous episode with the student loan planner. You know us doctors. We come out of school roughly around 200, some people all the way up to like 600,000 in debt. And so we were talking about ways that you can consolidate or can you uh, have loan forgiveness programs. And he kind of was talking about near the end, a little bit about retirement. And like, you know, if you do this, you actually save money, but you need to have a 401k. You need to have all this other stuff. So I was like, that's great. I think Jason would be a great uh, follow-up in this financial series to just kind of go through the 411, somewhat basic, but also some of these higher level things like trusts and wheels and things we should look out for and, and uh, estate planning that most doctors, I think, would need to know about because they should have the wealth accumulation that warrants those types of um, uh, investment vehicles. So audience, if it sounds really basic, stay with it. You'll find some stuff that's kind of heavier at the end. And if you're really just like, wow, yeah, I'm uh, 32 and I haven't started investing for my retirement yet, then definitely perk up and uh, grab a pencil and don't wreck while you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a long intro. But tell me, man, first, before we get started, what's a CFP? Why is that better than just a whole hum person who can invest in uh, some kind of mutual fund for you? Okay, well, it's... Not necessarily a better or worse thing, but I can tell you what a, a CFP is, and so people can can know for themselves and make informed decisions uh, before hiring someone like that. So I am a, a CFP professional. It stands for Certified Financial Planner. Uh, CFP designation is is really it's given out by the CFP Board of Standards and. To qualify to be a CFP professional, you have to go take graduate level coursework in the areas of investment planning, retirement planning, tax planning, risk management and insurance planning, estate planning. And once you pass all of those classes, um, like a master's program almost, basically, yeah, yeah. Okay. You then have to sit for a board exam 
uh, I believe it's six hours long now. When I took it, it was 10 hours long. Uh, it You had to take it over two days, and then they waited something like three months to give you your results <laughs> and had a pretty low pass. Whoa. The, the pass rate wasn't that high. Um, it was a very, very <laughs> difficult exam. You have to have three years of practical experience before, even if you pass the test, you have to have three years of practical experience before you can call yourself a CFP professional. And then on top of that, you have to adhere to a very strict code of ethics. And then once all that's done, you have to do continuing education. Um, they require about 30, well, they do, they require 30 hours of, of CE each reporting period. And that's on top of any of the CE that you take for your other registrations or license. Man, that's more than what a doctor takes. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, we definitely, most places don't have to take 30 hours. Plus all the other stuff that you're talking about. Really? Well, and there's ethics. You have to take C, uh, CFP ethics. Uh, and again, that's on top of the, any other insurance licenses or securities registrations that you may have. That, that's you had CFP specific type of, of CE. And yeah, so it's very difficult to become one. You really have to know what you're talking about in order to uh, get that designation. And really that sort of person, somebody who is a CFP professional, they really best fit into your financial life as really the quarterback, if from my perspective, because they're really trained to understand your entire financial situation, kind of from a, a global perspective or the 30,000 foot view, um, not just not just really your investment planning or just uh, your insurance or your estate planning. But they're trained to really understand the entire picture and understand how it all interplays, because planning doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Really, uh, each each area of your planning interconnects and intersects and can affect other areas. Uh, it, and so, so you got to really, you might get some advice from you, but then you got to go and talk to the lawyer that can put it together, like the LLC or the S Corp. Then you got to talk to the accountant that can help create sort of the things that you got to have for what you need to do as well. Yeah. So really, yeah, you do. You do. You have to really know as much as possible about that person's situation. It, it does involve coordinating with the other advisors. Oftentimes I tell my clients, you know, that they, I'm not necessarily here to replace anybody. I'm here to basically join the team of advisors, your trusted advisors and tie everything together and help coordinate everything. Because I, I find oftentimes the CPA may not be speaking with the investment advisor. Uh, the investment advisor may not be speaking with the attorney. And the attorney may not be speaking with the CPA. And, and so the, the client is doing little pieces of their financial planning in bits and pieces, and no one's talking with one another. And so you may have things that conflict between mm -hmm. different types of planning and may actually uh, either contradict or conflict or even void out some of the, the types of planning you've done. Basically, they're working against one another, not intentionally. You could depreciate some building or something like that way more, fa like way faster than like you would have recommended, you know, or whatever. I'm just throwing things out there. But yeah, it could put a, it could have put a wrench in what you were trying to do because like, whoa, you didn't do this correctly. Now you're in this other tax bracket and now you don't have this, don't qualify for these things anymore because y'all just didn't do something right. Generally speaking, I mean, it, it's not that you're preparing their tax return as a CFP, but taking a look at their Schedule 1040 or their, their federal tax return can give you a huge clue into what's going on and some adjustments that may may be able to be made that you can go back to the CPA and discuss um, on the investment front to maybe reduce the the tax uh, the taxable interest or or you know there there are lots of different things you can do 
to reduce the amount of taxable income. I'm not saying changing your income, but reduce the amount that's exposed to taxes. And just by taking those simple steps of having two people talk to one another it can make a huge difference. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor, and I'm not sure if this happens with you and your patients, but sometimes you have people that don't want to tell you everything, either because they're <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they could be embarrassed or they may just feel like it's none of your business. But yeah, how, how are you supposed to do your job to the best of your ability if you can't no, if you don't know everything. I mean, you do, if you go to the doctor and you don't tell them about a, an allergy to a medication, I mean, they could kill you. <laughs> I mean, you go to a chiropractor, you say, you don't tell me you have cancer. That's a problem. That's a problem. If it's bone cancer, that's kind of what I'm working on. That's not a good thing. Well, exactly. And, and it's not it, It's not that I'm trying to be nosy or anyone in this position is trying to be nosy. It's that they need as much information so they can give you the correct answer. Okay. All right. So let's take a few minutes and just kind of go through the nuts and bolts. 401k, I'm self-employed. I know we have something that's pretty much the same thing, but it's called a SIP or a simple for, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> there's uh, mutual funds and there's ETFs, pure stock. Kind of give us like a rundown on kind of what you're looking at. Roth IRAs as well. I love those. So that we just kind of have an idea of some of these buzzwords, and then we can kind of move on into some of the other stuff that we wanted to talk about. Okay. Well, so these are all ways to to handle or either save for retirement, reduce your current income taxes, or maybe future income taxes in the case of a Roth type of plan. But I always encourage people to, one, in my position, to save as much as you can, and two, to never pay more taxes than you have to. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not telling you to not pay taxes, that you have to pay your taxes, but there's no sense in overpaying when you don't have to. There's plenty of loopholes and plenty of deductions that you can take if you know how to do it legally. Right. and Not even gray area. You just got to have somebody that knows what they're doing. Yeah. It, it's just basically uh, gifts that Congress has given you that you can take advantage of. And, and so we'll, we'll start with some of the simple ones that are low-hanging fruit. Uh, 401ks and 403bs. I know a lot of the people that listen to your podcast are physicians. You're probably dealing with folks who are either direct employees of a hospital or a, a medical practice, or they may be self-employed and they own the practice. But we'll start with the most basic situation. Let's say you are a, just a W-2 employee of a hospital or an organization. So in, in that instance, you would probably have access or should have access to a 401k or 403b. And let's say for those who are familiar with those, bear with me for a second. I want to speak to the people who are not and just give them a little rundown of what that is. It's basically a tax deferred retirement savings plan. The money comes out of your paycheck. You decide how much you want to contribute and it's taken out of your paycheck before taxes are taken out. If it's a traditional 401k or 403b, the money has the potential to grow tax deferred. So any growth that you have is tax deferred until you begin taking money out. And so, again, I want to caution people that this is a retirement account. This is money you are putting in for a very long time. Uh, assuming that you're young. In 2019, you can, if you're under the age of 50, I would assume folks listening to podcasts are probably a little bit younger, but for those who are in their 50s and older, that's great. Uh, for those who are under 50, you can contribute up to $19,000 a year. This mm -hmm. year, if you're over 50, there's what's called a catch-up provision where you can contribute up to $25,000 through the over 50 catch-up. 
that's a lot of money that you can't actually defer from taxes. And that's actually, if you're married, that's per spouse. So both of you can do that. And the hospital is going to match part of that, usually. Sometimes they do, just depending on the, on the plan. But that's, that's free money, more or less. You know, by not participating in it, you're not allowing them to give you a raise, more or less. Hey, would you ever say, if a hospital says, okay, I want to save, let's say I want to save uh, 15% of my income, but the hospital only matches 3%. Mm-hmm. Should I just invest 3% with them, take that other percentage and go to somebody like yourself and uh, maybe get it better, a better option well, than just giving them the whole 15? Yeah, honestly, it really depends on the person's situation. It depends on mm. the plan itself. Some some 401k plans are very good. They have low expenses sometimes or can have very low expenses. They may have very good investment options. So it's really going to be situation specific. And okay. And okay. Before you make any decision as to not participate in your 401k or to instead of participating in the 401k, put money into a traditional IRA. It, there's a lot of things you need to look at. Expenses would be one. The investment options would be another. Uh, the amount of money that you can contribute because there are different contribution limits for both. And mm. you're going to look at whether or not there's a match. Because like I said, if you're not contributing at least up to the match, you're you're basically throwing away money because that's... That's, that's a 3% raise practically. Right. Yeah, basically, yeah. Well, so if, let's say, let's look at the higher limits because you're probably dealing with folks with higher incomes or who at somewhere down the road would have a higher income. Let's say you've got somebody who's under the age of 50 and they're contributing $19,000 this year to their 401k or their 403b. Let's just assume you're in the 24% federal tax bracket. Uh, and that starts at about $168,400 in income for this year. In my state, in Louisiana, that would put you in the 6% tax bracket. So roughly, roughly that save you somewhere around $5,700 in income tax. Just by putting that money into your 401k or 403b plan instead of your savings account, you, it, it allows you to keep more money and put more money into your pocket. That's a significant difference. And then if you do that, if both spouses do that, then that's what, an $11,400 tax savings right there, roughly. And Yeah, and it's going to grow for the next 20 years. It, it could grow. And that growth on a traditional 403b or 401k would be tax deferred until you start taking money out. So one other thing to keep in mind, if you have a 403B, there's also something called uh, the 15-year catch-up. So if you've got over 15 years of service, you can put a little bit more money into that on top of your over 50 catch-up. But there are some special rules with that. And so you need to talk to generally talk or work with your payroll department to have them help you determine how much you're eligible to contribute. And one other big thing, big thing to remember, this is a retirement account. So if you are under the age of 59 and a half and you decide to take money out, you may be subject to a 10% penalty on top of the taxes you'd be paying. Uh, so that's a wow. big consideration that, that you, you want to make sure that you're thinking through. Yeah. So you can easily lose 25 to 35% of whatever you're trying to take out. Yeah. It's, and plus it can put you in a new tax bracket if you're taking out lump sums. It's Oof. It, Just don't do it. And, and and it depends on the person's situation. I personally never try to judge somebody because, uh, you know, you, things come up, but it, it's definitely can put a crimp in, in your style. Now, one thing, too, uh, that I would probably be remiss if I didn't mention before we move to the self-employed people are FSAs. And so, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, 
those are basically they want first of all they use it or lose it but an fsa for those who are not as as familiar with those they're a flexible spending account or a flexible spending arrangement and it's through your we love them yeah they they we love swiping that card <laughs> but i use one too but um you basically you can funnel your medical expenses through them and you can each spouse let's say you're married each spouse can contribute up to $2700 to an FSA this year now not all plans have caught up to that IRS limit but right now the contribution limit is 2700 per spouse or per individual and the money that you put in there as long as you it goes in before taxes and as long as you use the money for qualified medical expenses, it, it's not subject to federal income tax, social security tax, or Medicare tax. And so that's an additional tax benefit that you have using those plans that aren't available with a 401k. And so- But if you don't, but you lose it at the end of the year if you don't use it. Correct. And so- uh, So you better budget correctly. You should. And so my wife and I, in our personal case, we, we have a pretty good idea of what our medical expenses are ongoing. Now, of course, you've got emergencies that come up and things like that that are harder to ex- really expect or plan for. But, you know, we know generally what we're going to spend each month on just the doctor visits and on we have a good average of how often our kids get sick. And so <laughs> we kind of has real man. And we've got three of them. So, you know, we've got to, we're kind of on a, a first name basis with our doctor, our pediatrician, but. We, we just plan for how much we expect to spend that year, and that's how much we put in. And the money that we spend on on those medical expenses for us and our children, uh, that's basically income tax-free money. And I, it's important, though, I, I would caution people more or less just to know and, and be considering this when you're deciding whether or not to contribute to the FSA, is that because you're not having to pay Social Security tax or Medicare tax on it, that that piece of your income isn't used in the calculation for calculating your social security benefits down the road. And so Mm. it puts more money in your pocket today, but could mean that you have less in your pocket later. So I would, I would really, I guess, caution people to, if you're going to use this to just make appropriate plans, you know, save, put as much as you can in your 401k and your 403b and your, your retirement accounts but if you know your kid's going to need braces, you can tell, man, 2022 is the year. I better start saving up now because I know my kid's going to need some braces. And now you have the money. Those are not, we're, we're already looking at that. that that's not, not cheap. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But I mean, it makes sense. And, you know, and as a doctor, we're excited to see it because it's so easy on us for paperwork. Mm-hmm. It's, there's less red tape and all that kind of stuff. So we're, we like them. And you know, at the end of the year, you start to see an influx of people trying to is this covered? Is that covered? You know, they're looking at your wall of stuff that you might be able to buy and they're like, I need to get rid of it. <laughs> I'm not sick. I only got two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's why you, you're just careful to really think through how you much, how much you might need to spend that year. I mean, you can't, it's impossible to predict it down to the dollar, but you know, yeah. think it through. And I mean, it's only 2,700 bucks. That's not even your deductible for most people. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I mean, you know, that my wife is diabetic. And so we, we have a lot of medical expenses just personally. And for us, it's a very helpful, t- you know, it may not be as helpful mm-hmm. for somebody who has no medical expenses ever because they never get sick and they have no children or married, but, but it's definitely something to put in your tool belt and think about. 
Now, for your self-employed people, you know, you may not have an FSA available, but you have what's called a SEP IRA. If you are self-employed, you can use a SEP IRA. And that's basically an IRA that is for the employer. And the that particular IRA has a slightly different, well, it has a different contribution limit or higher contribution limit. And so as the employer, you have to follow a, a formula, but the absolute maximum contribution you can make is $56,000 in 2019. Um, Come on. Yeah. I mean, assuming that you, the formula works, <laughs> works in your favor. So assuming you're, <laughs> the way it works is you, you know, it's based on your net income. So assuming your net income is high enough, you can actually defer up to $56,000 of income into your SEP IRA. So if if you're in the top tax bracket and in 2019 and you did contribute $56,000, you'd get roughly a $24,000 income tax break by putting it into the IRA instead of your savings account. That's a it's a really good planning tool. Now it doesn't make sense for everyone. It really depends upon your income. Right. But then one thing I heard when I was trying to uh, do that once upon a time, if you wanted to match, like if you're an S corp or corporation and you wanted to say, oh man, I want to, I want to match My business wants to match me 3% or whatever. Yeah. But you also have to, uh, every employee has to be able to contribute to the fund. And if you match yourself, you have to be able to match what they put as well. Well, is that true? So basically, I mean, there are special rules if you do have employees if you make a contribution to yourself or for your SEP IRA, then you need you have to make contributions to employees. And there are rules you have to follow. Uh, but they don't have to participate if they don't want to at all. No, and it, really it's set up for you to, as the employer to make contributions, generally speaking. Mm. But yeah, I mean, if you do have employees, you just have to bear in mind that you're going to most likely have to make contributions and again, or to your employees, uh, SEP IRA as well. But bearing in mind that, you know, you'd have to look and see if they met those requirements to receive the contributions. Um, it's an income requirement and some other ones, but uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of treating people fairly. So, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing either. I mean, come on. Exactly. Like, I know we get on these big corporations like, man, you can't even pay your people minimum, like a, a livable wage, much less a retirement package. And then at the same time, we're like, oh, I don't know. I, I don't want to pay that extra $200 because of that 401k that they're going to get. Like, come on, guys. Don't be so cheap. Yeah. You know, help yourself and help your employees. Come on. Treat people right. And uh, I, this is just me talking, but I think if you treat people right and you're, you're kind, and you're fair, sometimes more than fair, people are going to be loyal. They're going to treat you right in return and it comes back to you, you know? Yep. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. Something else you can use, and this would apply to both self-employed people and uh, direct employees, but they could use 529 plans. So a lot of people want to send their kids. That's the education one. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people want to send their kids to college. And I mean, it's no secret that college is getting a very expensive. I mean, the last time I checked the tuition, I, I know you and I, we went to LSU together Tuition now is way more than it used to be when we went there. Uh, Free, baby. Like 15. Thank you, tops. Ago. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Anything is more expensive <laughs> than that. That's <laughs> But no, but like for real, it's like what, two, maybe two, three thousand a semester? And that's cheap. A lot more than it was when we went. And I mean, my kids are still young. If it keeps, if the cost keeps going up at the same rate, it's going to be a lot more expensive than it is now. 
And so we're personally starting to try to save for that to give our kids at least a jump start on their tuition. And mm-hmm. the way a 529 plan works is you're able to save for for college and that money grows tax deferred. If you so you put money in and that money grows tax deferred. If you take money out for qualified education expenses, then it's tax free. So mm. if you there are a lot of different plans too that I guess it's important to, to bring up. That's the problem. There's so many plans. There's a lot of plans. And you don't have to necessarily contribute to a plan in your state. So uh, like, for instance, Louisiana has a plan. Virginia has a plan. New Mexico has a plan. All these different states have their own plans for their for their citizens. And that's great. If you contribute to a plan in your state, generally speaking, you'll see a state a state income tax deduction for it. Um, it'll reduce your, your state income taxes. But if you contribute to a plan outside of your state, you may you may not get that tax break or probably probably won't. But it's more fluid though. Well you'll still get you'll still get the benefit of the money growing tax deferred. But I mean if your kid you don't know where your kid's gonna go to school like they might be like, oh no, I'm going to New York for a school. And you're like, well you can I paid for Louisiana. You can use the plan in any state. Um, so a Louisiana oh, okay. can pay for a, a university outside of Louisiana. The issue is that you just may or may not get the tax deduction if you're contributing to a different state's plan than where you live. But mm. you still get that that pre-tax growth. And then if you take the money out for qualified education expenses, you're, you're not going to be taxed on those withdrawals. Okay. So that's the long term. Yeah, it's very useful. It is very useful. And there are certain reasons why people go out of state for their plans. Sometimes they may not like their they may not like their state's plan. They may not like the investment firm that they've chosen the state's chosen. You know, they may feel more comfortable with a plan that or more familiar with a plan that's out of state. Or maybe um, some plans some states don't allow advisors to work with the plan. Um, and so uh, and having to go with you work in a lot of different states. You just your home base is Louisiana. Right. Right. And so, you know, really, there are a lot of different reasons to choose different states plans. But it's really important to be informed, ask questions, try to understand the the pluses and minuses to each state's plan, uh, the investment options available and to make sure that you're making a very well informed decision before you actually start investing money. Uh, I, I would Tell people to, you know, ask for a free prospectus, read through the prospectus, ask questions. And that, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. And, and well, <laughs> that's what we're going to read. <laughs> you should. You should. That's what I'm paying you for. <laughs> Give me the top three. <laughs> and, you know, too, that, I mean, there's no there are no guarantees that investments can go up or down in value. But but that this is a long. Boy, that would be sad, huh? 20 years from now, your kid goes to school and you're in a down market. You're like, dang it. Make wise choices. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, it really helps to to pay close attention, to ask questions, to if you can work with an advisor, someone who can kind of guide you through the process over time. Hey, real quick on the on that plan. Yeah. Obviously it's tuition, school books. I heard, and this is what I think some people get excited about when they have the extra money. I don't know what the limit is, but let's let's just say you put in a, a fifteen thousand a year for like fifteen years. Man, by the time your kid goes to school, that's going to be a nice chunk of cash right there. Uh-huh. And instead of buying an apartment or making them live on campus, what I've heard you can do is you can get a condo or you can buy a house because they're going to school and that's considered their room and board. 
and then that you just bought a house tax free mm. or um you know the growth was tax free and then they could have roommates and they can pay you rent and all of a sudden they're paying your house note and now you got an extra rental property out of it all just from uh money that you invested a long time ago for an educational expense yeah i would i would definitely say and caution you to speak with your cpa at length about before you do um the <laughs> he's like well, i don't know about all that <laughs> the irs has a big stick and so i would i would okay yeah they do to to speak with your cpa disclose all the details of what you're planning to do and and get their advice before you did anything like that but they do cover some kind of room and board though yeah 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 room and board like if you stayed on campus that would be probably the most obvious like you live on the dorms yes it's considered part of your education right right but Okay. But generally speaking, I don't, you know, I don't work for the IRS, but I, um, I, I, I would, I would suggest you talk to the CPA before you did something that. Something like, yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Remember, I am not a financial planner, and uh, he's not yours. So we're just throwing out ideas that you need to go and uh, find out more information about CYA people. <laughs> something too that I forgot to mention is if you take money out of the the 529 plan and don't use it towards or for education expenses, you're going to pay a 10% penalty and taxes on the growth. So if there is any growth. So what happens? Your kid goes to trade school in two years. Mm -hmm. They get a scholarship for four years. You have $150,000 in this account. What are you supposed to do? And you only have like, say one kid. Like, what do you do with all that money? You just got to take a penalty. Can you roll it over into something else? Well, so shame on you. <laughs> it's not shame on you. You're planning it. We'll, we'll back up. Let's say you have multiple children. A 529 plan, you can always change the beneficiary. And we see that frequently. Oh. So one of your kids gets a, a large scholarship or decides decides not to go to college. Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say they go to trade school or they, they just, you know, they decide that. Because they, they need to do something. Yeah, they, they do something, but it doesn't involve involve school. Well, your other kid decides to go to grad school or medical school. Well, you take you have the ability to change the beneficiary of that that account and then use it for your other child. You can also uh, mm -hmm. you can also change the beneficiary. Let's say your kid has a child, you can say change the beneficiary oh. to your grandchild, and so you're leaving a leg legacy of education for your family. So we can go deep. Yeah, I mean, you can go pretty deep. You could also, I mean, there there are, and again, this would be something to talk to your CPA about, but if your child gets a scholarship, there are certain provisions to be able to get some of that money back without having to pay a penalty. But before you- Yeah, because I mean, that's not fair. Talk to your CPA, yeah. Talk, talk to your CPA. Okay. All right, because you, you would be the person to put us into the plan, but the CPA is kind of going to help you take it out so that you don't shoot yourself in the foot at the end. Well, yeah, I'd be the one if if for for my clients, yeah, I'm, I'm I'd help them physically do the the withdrawals and things like that. But we always we always try to rope in the CPA as well. Did you get to the point where your your clients they've been putting it in? You're looking at it, you're projecting. You're like, yo, man, we don't really need to put any more education fund away because you're probably gonna have more money than this kid's ever gonna be able to spend <laughs> uh, unless you really do want to pay for your grandkids' college as well. Like, we just need to stop. Well, I'll be really honest with you. I just don't come across that that often. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, okay. People aren't putting that kind of money in there. Yeah, I mean, I see people that are trying to save really hard for college, but getting to a point where there's just so much money set aside for college I, that I just tell somebody, hey, look, stop. 
I have not seen that. Now, I will usually <laughs> caution people that there are no you, you don't want to give your kids so much at the expense of your own ability to maintain a, a good standard of living throughout your lifetime. Right. That's, yeah. It's and that's coming from a dad. You know, it's I can't tell somebody necessarily how to feel about their children and and their their goals and their hopes. But I always caution people to think about this. You know, there are no student loans or for retirement. There's no grants. There's no scholarships for retirement. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have social security. Some people have pensions, but. Generally speaking, you're kind of on your own. And so you, you need to be saving so that you don't have to work till you're 90. You know, it, for people that choose to work that long or life just deals them a hand like that, there's no judgment here. It, life happens. And people sometimes really enjoy their jobs, enjoy their work and more power to them. But you don't want to see yourself in a situation where you've given your children so much that you just really, you're not going to be able to ever retire. Or if even the slightest bump in the road comes up that you're out of the street, you know, we kind of ask people jokingly, you know, when you, when your kids have spent all your money, are they, are they going to let you move in with them? <laughs> uh, it's true. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Maybe they will. You know, I hope they will. Maybe you will. Do you want to? <laughs> do you want to? Nobody wants to be a burden. And so, yeah. That you need to use, there needs to be some balance. And that maybe that's why I don't run into that situation as much. It's it just because we do, we do caution people to, you know, think about your own situation first. You know, when, when you're on an airplane, when they go through all the list of the emergency procedures, they always say, put your own mask on first. If there's a, what a cabin pressure problem, put your own mask on first, then turn to your child and put their mask on. You cannot bless the person next to you. You can't bless your child unless you're in a you're in a healthy position too. And so, you know, I kind of compare it to that. Exactly. Your kids in school and they're like you're eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It's like that's not that's not good. That's not the way you want to live your life. I like ramen, but you know, I I don't eat it because I have to anymore. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, I looked at it as like I had the money available, and you know, right now. So like, I'm going to like put more than I would normally put probably the first year. Cause it's like, you know, that first year I got 18 years. I'd rather do it now while I have it. And then in five years, you know, if you're like, well, I don't really have as much to put without hurting my own lifestyle. Well, that's okay. It's still growing from that big chunk that first year and I can still sleep good at night. <laughs> right. And if you're going to do a large chunk, I'd, I, again, I'd tell you to talk to your CPA because there are, uh, if you contribute over certain amounts, you may be subject to filing a gift tax return. Mm. Not necessarily a problem, but it does just create a little bit more administrative uh, work for you. And uh, so, again, I would just I would talk to your CPA before you, you start making large contributions, just so you know what you're getting into and what would be okay. required of you going forward. Hey, when you're talking, well, we're jumping around on this one. <laughs> when you're talking like a gift, I know there's like when your parents are old. And they're retired and they're like, they have more money than they can spend. And they're like, yeah, you know, I'm probably going to be dead here in the next five years from my bad health. Mm -hmm. They can start giving a certain amount of money to all their, whoever they want, really, mm -hmm. as a gift every year. Yeah. That's true, right? Yes, it is. Um, okay. And, and again, I would, I would tell you to talk to your CPA before you start doing that, just because there are limits on how much you can, how much you can give. You, again, you want to know what you're getting into if you're going to have to start filing gift tax returns, things like that. 
but again, you coach people like when you're talking to these people and you've had them as customers for a while and they're getting to that point and they, they ask you that kind of question and you're like, yeah, there's a way to funnel off some of this money to people that you love and that way you don't get hit with the, the death tax as bad when they have to split your money when you pass. Well, we do. I'm guessing, right? Yeah, we have those conversations typically with folks that we're doing uh, comprehensive financial planning for and estate planning. It's, it's becoming less of an issue right now because the estate tax exemption has gone up so much. It was was considerably lower. Now it's $11.4 million for a single individual and $22.8 million for a married couple. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, so you can have an estate of 22, around 22 million before without being subject to estate taxes. Again, you know, you're going to work with a CPA when you, or your executor is going to when you die, but that, that 22, that's a large estate that you can have before you start have running into those sort of tax issues. At, at one point, I mean, many years ago, it was much lower, somewhere around a million. Yeah, I remember that. That was like, people were freaking out. Yeah, I mean, it's changed over the years. And, and most recently, when the president worked to work with Congress to change the tax laws here about a year and a oh man, time is flying. Uh, at the end of 2017. Was this Obama or Trump? But President Trump. But if you, for folks who do have estates larger than that exemption, there are techniques you can do to start or use to start reducing your your estate tax exposure and reducing your estate. And so like what you're talking about, uh, gifting, and this this is kind of what I was alluding to with the uh, 529 plans as well like about gifting. So you can gift up to $15,000 as an individual to an individual before you become subject to having to deal with the gift tax returns and things like that. Uh, so it's called the annual exclusion amount, and it's fifteen thousand dollars. So a married couple, let's say this is this is probably a more common scenario that I, I've seen. You may have a married couple that has um, some children and grandchildren. Let's say they have two kids and two grandkids. Well, that married couple can gift fifteen thousand a piece, so thirty thousand dollars to each one of their children. So those two children, so that's sixty thousand dollars, and then their two grandchildren another 30,000 to each grandchild, you know, before they wow. start having to be subject to annual gift tax. You know, there's some other things that other tax issues you might want to talk to your CPA about. And again, before you do it, that's a lot of money to part with before you, you know, get your CPA to sign off on it. There's generational skipping tax that you might want to talk to your CPA about, but you know, let's just, even, even if you're just dealing with your, your two children, that's, that's sixty thousand dollars you can get out of your state, and you can do that every year without having to be subject to uh, the gift tax. So that that's one way to get it out of your state. One thing, uh, yeah, that, that's one way, and that that's what one of the things we do and work with with people on that is is gifting those that, that annual exclusion amount. And right now it's fifteen thousand, but it does change from time to time. It used to be fourteen thousand up until. Really, 2018, it went up. But uh, yeah, it, it can be a useful tool. So that's a nice way where like a grandparent, if, what, I mean, whoever really, you know, and not have to pay as much taxes in the long run. And it's because you can just, hey, here, here's a gift. There's a child, a grandchild or something with, uh, sometimes grandparents contribute to 529s. Well, you can front load it and put uh, mm. a larger amount in there. Uh, that's nice. So they could do that too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's true. It doesn't have to be the parents to put in the 529. Really, anybody could put into a 529 for that person. 
for that kid. Right. Oh yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think I think my parents are doing that. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's that's a good one. Hey, let's talk about um what what's a trust. Why would somebody use that? I like to think of it as those spoiled rich kids who uh, they care about the environment and they're in college, but you know they don't even have to work, so that's why they care about the environment so much. But I'm just I'm just picking on environmentalists at the moment. <laughs> but you know, you just have all this money. You got five, ten million dollars, and you know your kid's eighteen, and you just don't want to give an eighteen year old, I think, ten million dollars because you passed away in a car accident. That's a really bad situation, I would think, for an eighteen year old to have that much money coming from not having that kind of money. So give us give us the rundown on what a trust is and why would you use one and, and all that stuff. All right. Well, that's actually a really good question. So a trust is really just a legal arrangement. And I'm going to try to not use legalese the most the, the best I can, but it's basically a legal arrangement where a person or an entity like a, a company acts as a trustee or someone that holds property in a fiduciary capacity for someone else. And fiduciary capacity basically means that you are obligated to act in that other person's best interest. You, you want to talk to an attorney before you use or, or set up a trust or ask, ask lots of questions, make sure you understand what you're doing uh, and, and work with an attorney. In Louisiana, ironically enough, Louisiana is a civil law state. The other 49 states are common law states. In Louisiana, you can actually work with a notary to set up a, a trust and notaries can't practice law, but they have the legal authority to, to, to do sorts, those sorts of things. It's a way big deal in Louisiana. They're not just watching you sign a piece of paper and stamping it. It's way more involved in Louisiana. A big deal. It's a, the test. It's a big it's deal. Hard. The, the pass rate on that exam is like 18 to 23% statewide because you're actually being tested on the law. It, it's, it's crazy. So, we deal with this a lot in terms of, of working with clients and their attorneys and, and, and ha- trying to help them work through the pros and the cons of you know, and, and informing them about certain things to talk about with their attorney. So I, I guess we can talk about it's a, re- it's a really complex issue, but we can we can talk about the different types and different uses. And, you know, maybe somebody can glean something from that. So I'll talk to I'll speak to the one that I, I use personally, and it's because it, it involves my personal situation. We've got three children. So a very common discussion that I have with our clients is about testamentary trusts and working with an attorney for or to discuss a testamentary trust. And what a testamentary it's trust- It's a big word, Jason. Yeah. It, it, what it is, <laughs> is a trust that's set up through your will. And oh. it's there, it, it only comes to life. It basically springs to life when you die. And it's a trust that is set up to receive your assets when you die so that there's somebody that can administer them while your children are still young and immature and take care of those assets, help them either grow or just be, make wise decisions with them, be able to write checks to the guardian or, well, write checks for medical expenses for, to buy clothes for your kids, to buy food for your private kids. school private school if you saved enough but but basically it's it's a trust that's set up when or when you die to have somebody responsibly take care of your children uh, financially what i what i see and i see this too often and I, I mean i knew people growing up and you may have too that when they had a, a parent die they had a trust and i guess i don't know if the terms of the trust were loose or what have you but you know as soon as they turned 18 the money became the, the kids and 
the kids, they were buying, buying their mom a house or buying, you know, taking their girlfriends on these extravagant dates. And they were always the life of the party. Everybody wanted to be their friend because they just had loads of money. And I've seen people burn through so much money. It would, I mean, it would make you, you'd have a stroke if I told you the numbers. It's crazy. Wow. It would make their parents roll over in their graves, honestly. We we usually encourage people to talk with their, their attorney about using this trust to make sure that their child doesn't just come into loads of money when they turn 18. So not only is there somebody to take care of their money while they're children and make sure that their needs are met, financial needs are met while they're children, but you know, choosing the appropriate time and the appropriate amounts to give them so that they don't just come into large inheritances all at one time. So in our personal case, our, our testamentary trust, we've got it set up to where all of our life insurance, our, our retirement plans, they all pay into the trust. Uh, the, our, our house, everything goes into the trust. And when the kids turn 25, well, while they're children, the trustee would be able to you know, pay for their school, pay for their, their food, pay for their medication, everything. But when they, and it's set up where they can't steal your money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they, I mean, I guess they could, but they'd probably go to jail. <laughs> Like they might have a certain amount, like you could stipulate, like, look, I suspect it would cost 25000 per year to take care of these kids. This is how much you have access to per year. Yeah. That way they can't just take 200000 be like, yes, what it cost this year. It's more or less controlling the money from the grave. And so okay, all right. We, it, the way we've got to set up, our kids wouldn't receive their first lump sum from the trust until they were 25. And then they only get one third of it. And the reason we did that is, in our personal case, I I want my kids to have to struggle for a while because it builds character. It helps them learn how to have to have to survive on their own, how to pay their bills, and and have to try to improve their lives. You know, I, I want them to experience real life for a while. I don't want them to just be a trust fund child. Mm-hmm. When they turn thirty, they get another third of their inheritance. When they turn thirty-five, then they get another third. But, you know, another reason was that they would hopefully, if they were going to get married, have gotten married sometime during that time period. I mean, I was married at 22. And so, you know, there's there's less of this having to worry about somebody marrying them for their money because they're still broke. <laughs> right. You know? right. But that's how we now, are, can you put provisions for college? Can you put provisions for like a wedding? So like little things that you know that they're probably going to need that way. They're not like, dude, if I could just get to 25 years old, I'd finally be able to pay off all this debt that I have. But I was unwise at that point in my life, you know? I mean, you can, you can have it set up just about any way that the law allows. And again, I would, I'd talk to your attorney, but there's a good bit of flexibility in how you do it. Okay. I'm just curious, you know, if you're getting married, you might want to drop 8,000 for the kid and be like, here, here's 8,000. It's not the best wedding, but it's not a bad wedding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are all things that, you know, you can you can talk to your attorney about and have them incorporate. Now, they they may have other advice and maybe suggest something slightly different. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, the, the, the key takeaway here is it gives you gives you some control from the grave, more or less. And it allows you to protect your children from themselves. From themselves, and, and also in some cases from creditors as well, because you can put something called a spendthrift provision in it. But it, it basically mm-hmm. helps to protect the money from, in some cases, from from their own bad decisions and debt they may get into. Another thing, another reason people use trust is because 
a trust doesn't have to go through probate. Uh, it doesn't have to go through the court system when you die to have your your assets transferred to whoever it's supposed to go to. That, that can be done privately. Um, hmm. If you don't have a will or you don't have a trust in place, uh, it that all just goes through the court system. Uh, even a will, actually, if you have a will, those assets that pass by will have to go through the court process called probate. And uh, it's all a matter of public record. So, you know, folks that have... Oh, that's the difference. What's the point of the... Yeah, I was say, what's the bad thing about it going through the court? Okay, you got public record. Not everybody knows your business. Can they decide like, hey, we don't like the way it's distributed among your brothers and sisters? And you know, what's some of the drawbacks or whatever? Well, I mean, if you have a valid will, they're not going to do that. But it, I would say really uh, cost and privacy are two of the drawbacks that I've seen in the past. Uh, it, it can be costly to go through probate, depending on the size of your estate and the, where you live. Um, and also it's public. So, I mean, you remember the guy from The Sopranos? Um, I mean, there, there are different there are cases where if you have a lot of money, you may not necessarily want the whole world to know that your wife is worth 40 million dollars or your 18 year old is worth a hundred million dollars. I mean, that, that, that sets them up for all sorts of failure That's in true. life or da- it can be dangerous. I'm not saying that the, the court system or that the probate process is a bad thing because it's not, it's just that it's public. And so it's one thing to consider. Uh, it's definitely one thing to consider. Is it expensive to set up these trusts? Like why aren't more people doing them? Uh, I wouldn't say that it's not being done. It's, it's really a matter of being educated and, and, and your personal situation. Sometimes it may not uh, may not make sense to do it. It may not be something somebody wants to do. Uh, Maybe something the attorney advises against. But I I would say that you know, and this is kind of getting into where you would need the advice of your attorney, some legal advice, to determine whether or not it's a fit for you. Oh, anything else about trust that are uh, burning on your heart to tell us? Well, uh, this may be useful to some people in in your listenership, but you can do what are called charitable trusts. And because uh, I know if you're in a higher tax bracket, you may really want to get a, a tax deduction for your charitable donations. And with some of the changes in the tax law, it's a little harder to get them. So if you're making a larger donation, some people will use a charitable trust, which allows them to make a, a larger donation of of to charity, but they can still, in some cases, depending how it's set up, and you'll work with your attorney on this, but depending on how it's set up, you might be able to live on the income from that trust during your lifetime. So you're basically, you're, you're giving assets to the trust, but still getting income off of it. Let's say you use stocks or bonds or something like that. You could be getting paid out the income from those investments or whatever it is you've given, but still give, you know, considerable amounts of assets to that charity. It helps the charity in the sense that they know what they have to work with later on. And it helps right year after you, year. Yeah. And it helps, you know, or it helps you in the sense that you might be able to get a charitable deduction out of it. And, you know, all money aside, some people are just very charitably minded and they, they like the idea that they're, they've been able to make a difference. What's a large sum? We're talking 25, a hundred thousand. Well, Mill? That that depends upon the person's individual situation. What's large to me may be lar- not large to someone else, and what's oh, I mean legally. Oh, it, it really it depends. It depends. They okay. We these can be done in all different sizes. So if you had a really a passion for like spina bifida research, mm-hmm. and you had 
75,000, you could set up a trust where they just, they can't ever touch the 75,000, but all the dividends pushed off every year. Now they know, oh, wow, we have this much to work with per year, thanks to this person from, uh, you know, five years ago. And this could last forever. You can set it up to where you live off the income until you die, but they have the asset and they know that, you know, they, they, they have X, X number of dollars that they can work with now. And uh, it's something that it's something that can really be useful uh, both for the giver and the, and the charity. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you mentioned that. Charity is a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Can you do that for churches too? Yeah. Yeah, you should. Is this nonprofits? Now, yeah, you can. Uh, churches are, are charities. It just depends upon, you know, which church. Well, actually, it doesn't depend on which church you want to donate to. Uh, some churches, uh, what I would, would like to share with people is that some churches actually have entire departments devoted to this. <laughs> um, some of your big, some of your big organizations, some of your bigger denominations do have departments that, you know, they have vo- attorneys that volunteer their time or even may even work for the church that help set these up for people. Um, Are they cold calling all these people? <laughs> hey, <laughs> I don't know, but I heard you Baptist. <laughs> I heard you rich. <laughs> In our particular case, you know, we, we go to church and, you know, I, whether or not <laughs> we're just giving, we give because we want to give. It's, it's not because uh, it's definitely not because we're getting cold called. <laughs> Can you set up a trust, please? <laughs> That'd be so weird. <laughs> Who is this? <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, man, I'm, I'm cracking myself up. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> I'll pray for you tonight. <laughs> do that. Do that. Um, okay. So when I'm reading books, they're always talking about, you know, be safe with your money. You know, you don't need it actively managed. You can just invest with a wealth front or Vanguard or like a a mutual fund ETF and their expense ratios are just, they're so low, but then you got to be careful. You go somewhere else and you might be paying 1.5 or 2% and then all of a sudden it takes, you know, on a down market and in an up market, you got to overcome the expense ratio minus the actual percentage you made per this. And then, and they're like, over the lifetime, it's better to use this. And it's like, man, you hear that? And then you hear the other opposite, opposite end where you're like, no, it's, that's dumb. Like maximize the return that you can get. The expense ratio is really not that bad. We're going to make you way more returns over the long term and all this kind of stuff. So What's going on with that? Explain us the, the, the expense ratios and what we should be cautious about or look out for. Okay, so expense ratios. Uh, so generally speaking, costs have been going down over the last several years. An expense ratio is really a measure of how much of the investment's assets are going towards operating administrative costs. And this is for like mutual funds and stocks and stuff, right? Yeah. So an expense ratio would apply to yeah your, your mutual funds, your exchange traded funds. A stock wouldn't have an expense ratio. It, it, that's really just buying a piece of ownership at a company. And at this point, 401ks and all that stuff you're talking about is investments in mutual funds. A lot of them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, so if you do have mutual funds or exchange traded funds in your 401k plan, you're going to have expense for, uh, they're going to be expenses with those funds and, uh, it's, it's called an expense ratio. Uh, so an expense ratio or the expenses, the operating costs and administrative costs of the fund will reduce your returns because basically you're taking some of that money or some of those assets to pay the portfolio manager, to pay the analysts, to pay the electricity bills, to pay marketing, marketing, uh, that, 
they may also be paying for airline tickets to be able to fly halfway across the world to sit down with the CFO of a, a company that they're trying to determine whether or not it's worth investing in. Uh, so there, there are costs there. And, you know, with any business, there are going to be costs. And I think the key is to try to understand what the costs are. Um, try to understand if why you're paying them. Uh, maybe I ought to get into kind of what the, the differences are in terms of there are different types of funds and and what those expenses may or may not pay for. So let's let's talk with index about index funds because a lot of people ask about those. Uh, there's a lot of, of discussion about them out there in the investment world. Uh, clients ask about them. An index fund is generally speaking going to be a, a very low cost investment. They are they are first and foremost funds that invest in an index, just like their name. So let's say you might invest into uh, the an S&P 500 index fund. This is not a recommendation. This is simply just <laughs> um, <laughs> If you were to invest in an S&P 500 index fund, what you're in a sense doing or essentially doing is just if you put a thousand dollars in that fund, they're taking your thousand dollars and they're spreading it among every single stock that's in the S&P 500. And the S&P 500 is generally speaking the largest. It's the 500 companies in the U.S. stock market are the 500 largest uh, publicly traded companies in the U.S. And so you're you're essentially just taking your money and you're spreading it among those companies, good or bad. Uh, those companies, whether or not they're doing well this year, whether or not they're doing poorly, whether or not one one's business model it has it to where it's going to maybe do poorly for a few years, uh, you, you own everything. They may or may not be appropriate given your situation, and I would strongly advise you to to one read the prospectus. Uh, they're free. Speak with your financial advisor. Do your own research. Make sure you understand what you're getting into, but. The part of the reason that their their costs are so low is that they're not necessarily paying managers to go determine whether or not something's investment worthy or not. My company's investment worthy. They're simply buying the index. Now those can those can have, play a role in your portfolio. They can be good. Um, it could be a percentage, but everybody's different. Everybody's situation is different, and and it. The, the on the opposite end of the spectrum is actively managed funds. The way those work is you have a fund manager or fund managers that work with a team of analysts who are actually making decisions based upon uh, the books and the records of, uh, of companies, of municipalities, sitting down with CEOs, CFOs uh, of companies and trying to make a, a wise decision as to whether or not a company is investment worthy uh, and then how much money to put into of the funds money to put into that, that company or maybe a bond issuance that naturally is going to carry a little bit higher cost. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, again, understanding what you're paying for. If you're investing in say international an international fund, so a fund that invests in stocks of companies that are overseas, you're going to probably incur a higher expense ratio, and that's because you um, fly out to Germany. You run in, yeah. I mean, you've got you've got to fly people over to those companies. You've got to have possibly boots on the ground, people that actually work over in a different country. You're having to have people that can navigate 
all the the different laws of different countries. It it it, it costs more to be able to do that than if you're just simply buying every company in an index. Um, I'll give you a good example. Uh, several years ago, I was listening to a presentation by a bond analyst, and she was trying to determine whether or not a bond was was investment worthy. At, it was a bond for Chicago O'Hare, some improvements they were doing. And she actually got, she went to Chicago, got on the tarmac, and had she had her hard hat on. And she was talking to the people that were doing the construction and trying to figure out, you know, schedules and figure out impact on uh, the, the flights and, and possible delays for the flights and trying to determine whether or not it was worth the fund's time and money and, and investors' time and money to invest in this in this bond issuance for the Chicago O'Hare improvements. Also, I was listening to a, an analyst who, who handled investments overseas. This was actually a few months ago. And he's, he said he spent a lot of time in flying and traveling. <laughs> Obviously, he covered Latin America. And um, his thing was he was trying. One example he gave was he was trying to determine whether or not it was worth the investor's money to invest in a specific bond issuance uh, somewhere in Latin America. And I thought it was really interesting that this man had worked and gotten to know quite a few people down there in his time. And you know, he, he'd actually knew the finance minister of the country that he was dealing with personally because he had had been working with him when he had a lower position in the in the government and you know he he was trying to decide whether or not this was worth investing in and he actually picked up the finance minister of the country or picked up the phone and called the finance minister of that country and just started interviewing him asking him questions and of course it was all public information but he was able to go directly to the source and just ask you know like what was going on why what are you guys trying to do what's going on in your country can you just straight from the horse's mouth? And again, it's nothing. It wasn't anything that wasn't public information. But having the ability to pick up the phone and call the CEO of a company, that's something that you and me and the average investor can't right. do. We can't call the CEO or CFO and just ask them of what's going on in their, their company. Where do they see their company in the next couple of years? And what are their plans? And when you have these mutual funds that represent large blocks of money from investors, the CEO usually answers the phone or calls back. <laughs> and so that that's what, in that particular case, that's what you're paying for. Um, but again, I would, all that to say, you know, know what you're paying for, understand what you're paying for, be mindful of the expenses, ask questions, read the prospectus. It, again, it's free. Understand your options if you see that there's a cheaper share class or version of the same fund, ask your advisor why you're in the more expensive one. There may be a good reason. There may not be. It might be time to have a discussion with your advisor about, you know, a real heart to heart. Or the advisor might be able to give you a very valid reason um, why you're in that higher expense ratio. Because some the rules were what they were that year you bought it. And that's that's just how it is. Now it changed. And certain share classes uh, of funds are only available in certain types of accounts. And so, you know, again, it, it, it warrants a discussion and, and, you know, just make sure that you, you understand what you're getting into and what you're paying for. So really they could, they could have a fund and they, um, they might have a hundred out of those 500 
S&P 500 companies, but then they might also have another 150 companies from all over the other places that maybe not on the top 500, but they have done their research and are like, no, these are going to be, they're going to be really good. Always they catch some duds here and there, like they didn't pan out, but, um, you know, they actually go through and they pick all these other companies that they may not have heard of and they might mm-hmm. be mid cap or large cap. I don't even think I'm going to bore people with that large cap, mid cap and value. And it's pretty much just money they make. Like you're in this bracket of, uh, of income. Now you're, so you're a mid cap versus a large cap and benefits and risks when you invest in something like that. Well, you've got companies that whose, whose goods and services are in favor right now. You've got companies whose goods and services are out of favor. It, it is, it's very important to be diversified and, and, you know, typically when we build portfolios, we're trying to make sure that you have exposure to to small companies, to mid-sized companies, to large companies. That you've got an exposure to companies whose goods and services are in favor right now. And then it may, be, may seem counterintuitive, but to have exposure to companies whose goods and services are out of favor right now. You know, it typically... The way I ex- explain it to clients uh, is that investments are are sort of like a symphony. So y- you know, you, in the symphony, you've got a you got the flute. You well, I'm not a music person, but I'll, I'll just say you, know, you got the flute. You got the Some trumpets. You got the violins. You got the cellos. You've got um, trumpets. You've got all these different instruments. And if they and especially trumpets, in my opinion, if you hear a trumpet playing on its own, it may not sound. It might be kind of shrill. Uh, it may not be a pleasant experience just to hear one trumpet playing or even three or four trumpets. But when you put them all together for a purpose, playing one song in a unified manner, it comes together and makes beautiful music. Each instrument serves a purpose within that song and within that, that symphony. And it's the exact same way with your investments. Um, you're wanting to build a diversified portfolio that each each asset class each each type of investment within the portfolio needs to serve a purpose. It, it's, it, it can't necessarily completely get rid of risk, but it can reduce risk. It definitely doesn't guarantee a profit and you can't get rid of all risk, but, but it is a, a way to at least try to manage that risk. I've never gone to a, an advisor before without them showing you the little bar graph of international here's your bonds here's your large here's this and we want to balance this based on your risk ratio or tolerance and so he's like oh okay and they're like you're right where you need to be or this year your international was really good but now you're out of whack so we got to kind of get that back down to the number that we think is better it's easy to see yeah kind of that kind of you know what i mean you know what i'm talking about right yeah 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 i think it's great i want to know i mean that's a great little visual Wow, I'm really heavy and international. Okay, is that good? Is that bad based on my situation? And then they can talk to you about. It. I'm not saying that is what it is. I'm just making the comment. Well, and and that's good. I'm glad that you that you pay attention to that. I, I always I always try to caution people to ask questions. You know, make sure that you understand. If you don't understand the word what I'm talking about, please ask me. Please tell me. Let me know so we can back up and we can we can discuss it and and. and until or rephrase until it's something that makes sense to you because I don't know the first thing about medicine. I'll be really honest with you. I have no idea. You know, when you look at an x-ray, you know what to, you know what you're looking at. I just see a bunch of white stuff on the screen and I think, oh, that looks like a skeleton. Oh, is that a broken bone? That looks bad. You know, 
Yeah. I don't know what to do. I think the arm should be straight. Right, right. Oh, huh, that doesn't look like us in the right place. Yeah, exactly. But you know exactly what to do with um, and what the patient should do. I have no clue. And that's, that's because it's not my world. That's not what I deal with. It's not what I'm trained in. Everybody's good at different things. Everybody's trained in different things. And so, you know, probably like you, you probably tell your patients that, you know, ask me questions. If you, if you don't understand, ask me questions. And you're probably happy when you have somebody that genuinely wants to take an active role in their healthcare. Mm-hmm. When I am working with, with clients, I, I, it's the same thing. They, I understand, and I try to make it very clear that I understand this, that they don't deal with investments day in and day out. They don't, they don't sit and watch the stock market. They don't do research necessarily all day, every day about this sort of thing. That's what I do. That's what, what I like to do, what I'm trained in. And so when when they walk into the room and we begin going over a portfolio, we do it with the understanding that, you know, if they don't if they don't understand, that's okay. That's okay. And I they need to ask questions. And it's my my responsibility to help them understand so they can make an informed decision. Yep. Hey, real quick before before we go, you still got a couple minutes? Yeah. Okay. We didn't touch on life insurance. I think the skinny mm-hmm. term is whatever. It could be 20 years. You pay your premium each month. After 20 years, if you don't die, that's it. Congratulations. You didn't die. You just lost some money over the last 20 years. Okay. Whole life, on the other hand, you pay more money per month. You pay for it for the, for the rest of your life. But anytime you die, there's this policy that you get paid on. That's the skinny <laughs> of it, right? Yeah. That, I would say in a nutshell, yes. Okay. But whole life can get really complicated. Like you can have death benefits. You could have before you die, like, oh, you got cancer or terminal illness. You got this, you got that. You can take money. You can borrow from it. You can, uh, I think the next guy that's on the show, he's going to talk about using like, uh, I don't think he uses life insurance anymore, but they're like, you put your money into some kind of vehicle. It guarantees you a certain amount per year. It always raises. It follows the stock market. Perhaps you can borrow from it. At a somewhat like low, 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 low interest rate. Mm-hmm. And then that way it always grows. But when you buy that car for 20 grand or 50 grand, you just take it from your life insurance and you just pay back your life insurance over the next five years instead of a bank. Okay. So he's going to talk about all that kind of stuff. Uh, that should be the next episode, which I'm really excited about because that's a whole other thing that I've never really been able to grasp completely. But um, but give us a, a short little, you know, what, what are we looking for as far as terms and whole life? And then what kind of whole life should we sort of or generally for most people or for like physicians, for instance, might be more of a better option than some of the others? Well, okay. So that, that's a complicated question for a close, but we can, we can kind of, so. Cause are you could talk with it. Maybe it might be better is we hear horror stories where somebody gets bought this policy and then 10 years later, you find out that person who sold it bought a boat, but they really shouldn't have bought that whole life insurance. Like it only benefited themselves, but the person who's been paying on it for like 10 years was been, it was just a horrible purchase. Well, so I guess speaking to those types. So what you're, what you're talking about is more or less using well several things. One, using life insurance as a, a means of protection for your surviving family if something happened to you. Uh, there's also the component that you're, it seems you're talking about of using life insurance to, uh, to be able to access cash savings balance as well. So maybe we back up and we kind of go through that a little bit step by step. So life insurance, 
I always caution people that life insurance should be viewed as just that life insurance. Uh, life insurance is really a first and foremost, a way to protect your family or a survivor if something were to happen to you that's unexpected. Term life is generally a good fit for folks who maybe you're trying to cover a short-term need or a need with a specified time horizon, uh, or someone who doesn't have the ability to afford a more coverage or a longer you know, coverage that's going to last their entire lifetime. So term life typically is going to be a little less expensive, just typically. It, it can meet a specified need for a specified time. Now, what we would describe as permanent life insurance, that can that's kind of a giant umbrella term that lots of different types of policies fall under. One of those you mentioned was a whole life policy. There's also universal life, variable life, variable universal life. Oh my gosh. It can, get, it can get very complicated. And so we won't go too far into the weeds on that. But generally speaking, a policy that's called a permanent policy is designed to last your entire lifetime. That That's generally what they're for. So it you mentioned earlier, you have a policy that pretty much no matter what, you pay your premiums throughout your life. And when you die, even if you lived age 95 or say you lived into your 90s, you still got coverage. That's what those types of policies are. Those types of policies also allow you to, uh, it has a a cash value component. So these policies generally are going to be a little bit more expensive in part because one, it's going to cover your entire life. And they're basically trying to get more money into the policy through your premium early on to allow that money to grow over your lifetime so that as you get older and the actual cost of providing you insurance goes up, up. So as you get older, it costs more for you to be insured naturally because, you know, the likelihood of you dying goes up as you get older. So what the insurance company is doing is they're putting more money into this policy in advance than what the actual cost of insurance is for your age at that time. Let's say just generally speaking, for example, let's say it costs $10 a month for you to be insured. The, the insurance company may have you paying hundred dollars a month. And that's just, you know, numbers out of the, because they know they have to cover this bill at the end. Yeah. So, There's no getting out of it. Yeah. Cause they know at some point you're going to die and at some point they're going to have to pay out. So they're proactively having you put money in this policy and letting it sit aside and grow so that when you're 90 and it costs a tremendous amount of money for your actual ins- cost of insurance, the idea is that you have put money in this whole time and there's cash in this policy available to help cover that very, very high premium or that very, very high cost of insurance. The idea would be, though, that you'd be paying, at least with whole life, you would be paying a a level premium throughout your lifetime. Now, Mm. you were talking about borrowing from the cash value or taking cash value out of the policy to maybe buy a boat or something like that. Always caution people to be very careful when you do that. The reason why is that it's it can be very easy to blow your policy up. So that money in your policy, there needs to be, if you do intend to have that life insurance when you're 90, then you need to be, you need to have a set amount of money in your policy when you're 90 to be covering that cost of insurance. And if you're rating that, that cash value, it's very easy to take out uh, more than is sustainable for your policy to not lapse eventually. And I've seen 
Mm. I've seen policies lapse over the years where people did take money out or they didn't pay enough into them. You know, it, it's it's just something you really you need to you need to talk to your advisor before you start doing something like that. You need to talk to your CPA because under certain circumstances, it can have top tax consequences as well. And, and you need to be very well aware that your actions could possibly make your policy lapse. And if insurance protection is important to your family, then, you know, it, it may not be the best thing to do or best approach. Uh, I, I, That's true, because there's a legal amount of cash you have to have, like as a percentage of the total value that you have, something like that. Well, it's not a legal thing. Like you can't fall below yeah, a certain amount. It's not a legal thing. It's just that um, if you don't have enough to cover the premium, unless you, oh, unless that, you can cover the cost of insurance, you know, that month with, your, with a check, basically paying out of, if you can't send in the money and that premium is too high, which it when you're 90, it's going to be extravagantly high uh, just by virtue of your age. Uh, the policy is going to lapse. You, you want to make sure you don't shoot yourself on the foot. And I have seen where people have done that and either and you just, you just want to be informed and make an informed decision. Yeah. And so there's variable and then there's also, you said, universal whole or whole life. Yeah. Universal life, variable life. Are they that different? Or are they just set up for specific very, reasons? Very different. There's very, yeah, there's they're very different. They all they work differently. They have different um, different provisions. It's very different. I, we could go very far into the weeds. And it's probably more than anybody else would care to hear. Yeah, <laughs> uh, what's the like the generic summary of the other ones? That way, people are like, oh, that's okay. That's the difference. So uh, a whole life policy, I guess, just generically speaking, you're going to have. A, a set premium over your lifetime with a whole, uh, sorry, a universal life policy, your premium, you can dictate how much you pay into the policy. The issue is that you may not pay enough into the policy and it could cause your policy to eventually lapse because it might be too difficult to catch up on the premiums you're supposed to be making. And bear in mind, there are other differences, but these are kind of the, I guess, high level, easiest to understand and recognize. Variable and it will say variable universal life and variable life, those types of policies, they have an investment component. And so with universal life, it's you've got you're earning interest. And with whole whole life, it's just a, a set of you're earning interest, basically. With a variable life or variable universal life policy, you can choose certain investments that are offered through the insurance company and through your contract and maybe grow your money faster. But you can also, you know, if the market goes down, it may not, you may actually lose money. It's got more risk associated with it. Again, those are sold by prospectus, which are free. And you need to read the prospectus, ask for it, ask your, you know, ask your advisor and discuss at length the pros and the cons of those. You may even talk with your CPA about that, but they are going to be more complicated. They have more moving parts. Again, it's just really important to make sure that you understand what you're getting into. I, I have seen people that have not asked questions and later on don't necessarily understand what they own. Which policy has the, like those, there's about four or five criteria. Like if you, if you have cancer, if you're in a terminal or like, you know, you're going to, like hospice type of thing. Uh, there's, there's a couple other provisions. I don't remember what they are, but those are the obvious ones to me. And it's allowed to take, you're allowed to kind of like reduce your cash balance for some reason. But then there's other policies where like, no, you can't do that at all. I don't know if that's just something that's 
that was six years ago, 10 years ago, and they all allow you to have that pop, that flexibility now. But it was like a it was like a new thing at some point. So it depends on the insurance company that you're working with uh, and the terms of your contract. They have uh, some companies may offer a rider, which is basically a an, an addition to your contract where they let's say in some cases there are riders for disability let's say you become disabled well you know you don't have to pay a premium if you're disabled the insurance company basically or covers it there are situations where maybe you can take your debt part of your death benefit early because you're diagnosed with a terminal illness um, there are lots of different types of riders and and those are just i'm not saying that these are available with everyone I, i'm just kind of giving you some general yeah that I've seen in the past, you'll you'll want to talk with your you'll really want to talk with the, your insurance professional about that and and ask for the ins and outs of those specific riders. Make sure you understand them. Uh, read through the literature on that uh, because it really is specific to the company and specific to your contract. Companies what they offer differ across the industry and may even differ across the states because insurance companies are actually. I have to abide by state rules. There's probably literally podcasts just on this topic. There probably are. <laughs> I'm just geeking out for an hour interviewing all kinds of people. Did you hear about this new product that came out this week? Yeah. Oh, tell me you more. Need, you could really spend a lot of time on this. And I, I'd hate to go too far into it with people because I think that was plenty. I could I could talk about it forever and then they'd still have to talk to somebody <laughs> yeah. and find out the, the specifics to whatever it is they're looking at. And, and this is what's hard about like this interview is we're trying to be general and it's like, well, I tell you, if you gave me a case, we could work through a case in an hour and you'd be like, wow, this guy's amazing. Look at all the stuff that he figured out. But when it's all general and like, what is this? It's kind of like, well, every case is different. So if I say this, then you can't yeah. hold that to me because this case is different. So... We understand that. It does. It gets a little difficult because, you, you again, it, it'd be like asking a doctor, should I take this specific prescription? Well, I really should know a lot more about your specific situation before I say, yeah, take whatever it is. You know? I'm sure there's several ways to remove a gallbladder, but I don't know any of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know any of them, but I'm bad at you. There was, there's several different techniques. <laughs> there's lots of ways to sew you up. I don't know any <laughs> of them. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> You'd probably yeah. die. <laughs> hey, I've seen it over here. They use a staple gun. I'm like, what happened to needle and thread? Can we just get a pretty scar? Like, come on. Oh, we don't have to be this janky. You know, and the glue, when they glue people together with staples, I'm always afraid they're going to pop and the person's guts are going to go everywhere. <laughs> just said that, didn't I? <laughs> but it's true. Why did, I guess the skin tug keeps them, keeps them in place instead of just kind of popping out. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, people, hey, you know what? They staple wood pieces together too, though. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So all my doctor friends don't laugh at me too hard over that one. They're like, this dude needs to stay in your lane. That's what we're all telling each other. <laughs> That's our motto today. Hey, fun question. You ready? Yeah. You're married. You got multiple children. Mm -hmm. You got your own clinic. It's going to be a two for one right here. Okay. How are you able to take vacation? Because that's an important aspect of life and it's hard to get away sometimes. And then how are you able to keep the love alive so that you guys stay connected and not divorced? Well, yeah, we have our own practice. The way, Taking vacation, that's tricky. You know, <laughs> when, you, when you have your own practice, you, you're kind of always on call. So they, make this trade. Uh, I'm kind of in Hawaii today. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, vacations typically consist of me bringing my laptop, <laughs> bringing my phone, and uh, taking stepping away several times to take phone calls, um, place trades, and 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 send emails and answer questions, which isn't a bad thing. The, the really good thing for me is that Laura and I both work together, and she understands. She knows pretty much all of our clients. If I do need to step away, then you know she understands. She she knows the situation already. She knows the people, and she's really helpful in understanding and allowing me to do that, taking care of the kids, and then I hop back over. You know, we, we have some help locally too, which helps as well. We have a, another member of our, our team, my sister-in-law, Lisa, helps as well. And so, you know, we've got a little extra presence here, but really I would say just the understanding really makes a big difference. You know, because we're both part of the practice, I don't have to say, oh, it was a client call and, and just be quiet and can't can't tell her anything about it because she's part of the practice. I can actually say so-and-so needed X amount of money for X, Y, and Z, and we can have that conversation. And she can then provide perspective. So yeah, I wish I could say that when I do go on vacation that I'm I'm completely unplugged, but it just doesn't really ever happen. <laughs> but you could have someone cover you because you're part of a bigger yeah. – you know, there's an umbrella of people over you in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is some help, but I do prefer to provide really just a very concierge service and provide that personal touch. So clients have my personal cell phone number. And so if they need something, they call me and they call me during the day, they call me at night, uh, weekends. And that's okay. Cause as you get to know these people, they start to kind of become friends. And so, you know, it, I heard one time that if you enjoy what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And I can, I can honestly say that's true about, uh, so it doesn't mean you don't have a hard day, but it's not like going to work. It's, you know, I have a meeting and I'm going to sit down and have coffee with a friend of mine that I've known for X number of years. And half of the meeting might just be catching up and talking about their family, you know, what's going on in their life. And then then we get to the money. And uh, how do you keep them love alive? Babysitters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have a list of people that we we ask and we ask frequently to just keep an eye on our kids for a few hours here and there. And we go out and usually it's going to be when clients are not going to be calling. So later in the evening, maybe starting our night at like eight or nine o'clock, having a babysitter watch the kids and we'll stay out till you know midnight, one or two in the morning and go have dinner, go play pool, go bowling, go for a walk. Right now we're talk- planning our 15th wedding anniversary, trying to go to D.C., so we're planning out a trip there where we can just break away for a couple of days and um, just be a couple for a little while. You know, it's kind of hard. Yeah. It's, kids are a huge blessing, and I mean, you know that. But I don't know how you have three. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I don't know how you sign up for two. <laughs> God decided. I know what I'm getting into, and I'm just kind of like meh. I don't know. Ruby, you might be an only child. I'll, I'll, I'll invite your friends over. <laughs> we love them. You know, we love our kids. They're a huge blessing. But when when you have three people talking to you at the same time, it, it's sometimes really difficult to actually have a conversation as a couple. And so just getting away for a couple of days, even if you have to take the odd client call here and there, it just makes a huge difference being able to stay connected, doing fun things together, you know? Yeah, I mean, we, you see on your know, Facebook and stuff. So it's kind of fun to just kind of catch up and see like, Okay, wow, they're really active and they're doing stuff with their kids and they're, you know, you know, being, you know, just enjoying them right. doing things that they'll enjoy. So, I mean, I think that's a great 
idea to be a good mom, good dad, yeah. and then making time for each other as well. So uh, I think doing it right on, on several fronts there. Yeah, thank you. Says Justin, what does my opinion matter? I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I just like to say it. Well, how can people get in touch with you? It'll, obviously, it'll be in the show notes page. How can they reach out if they're like, man, this Jason Rainier seems like he knows what he's talking about. Maybe I should contact him. Well, they can reach out. They can call me on my, well, they can call me on my office, 225-953-8286. You can call me, uh, you can email me. My email address is Jason, J-A-S-O-N dot Rainier, R-A-I-N-I-E-R at LFG, like Lincoln Financial Group dot com. Or you can also reach out to us. Uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, and we're on LinkedIn. And so you just look us up, reach out to us, and we, we're happy to help. And RainierWealth.com? RainierWealth.com is our website, yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess I forgot that. Yeah, you can also reach out to us there as well. I take some notes. <laughs> I don't come unprepared, everyone. <laughs> I stalk them a little bit. Apparently I did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jason, it's been really fun, you know, just catching up as old friends, really grilling you on a different life path, you know, medical, the financial, everybody can get along. So it's just been really great to just pick your brain and learn so much information. And I know people who stuck with us for this long definitely will have a better understanding of what they need to do, you know, next, talking to somebody, calling somebody to get their financial life in order in many different yeah, aspects. Never be afraid to ask questions. I, I, I always just... Just I tell people, ask as many questions as you can, learn as much about it as you can, make informed decisions. Another great interview has ended. As I always say, I hope you listened, critically think, and implement something so that your practice life, family life can improve this week. I want to hit you up with a few links today. If you'd like to know what the top episodes of 2018 and 2017 were, you can just go to .net slash top 1718 and you can get a PDF of all those episodes. It's like 22 of them. If you're interested on any of the programs that I've actually been interviewed on, just go to .net slash as heard on. So play on as, as seen on, you know, so as heard on. If you didn't know, the Needless Acupuncture book sales page has been revamped, so it looks a lot better. You know, sometimes when you look at a web page and it doesn't look like it's put together well, you're like, meh, I'm not sure about this thing. But it's been redone. looks better. And also, if you have an Android device and you're curious about it, you can actually now download the same five protocols, blueprints, if you will, right there on your phone at the Needless Acupuncture app. And for less than $4, you can get the whole book on your phone from the Android Google Play store. So if you're interested, check that out. The electric acupuncture pen is still available at a great rate. You can get it on its own or as a package. So you can get the book, the e-pen, as well as the auricular points. Now, some of the things that I'm recommending, Blueberry Hosting, that's who I use. I really like them a lot. I'm not going to lie to you. Fiverr is where I get a lot of my music done, my logos. I don't know if you noticed on Facebook, I believe my picture is now a face with a bunch of words. I just saw that real quick. It was cheap. Yeah, I'll try that for a little while. It's fun. A turtle pillow. It's a travel pillow. It actually has like an H-beam in it. So you can rest your neck and your chin on that. So you don't get like the chicken bob where you, you know, you're sleeping and whoa, you wake up really fast. And you know, those, those U-shaped ones, I just don't think they work very well. So for me, it's worked really well. I've traveled know, 10 different countries with it. Across the pond, as they say. I really highly recommend that. If you're into instrument-assisted soft tissue manipulation, 
two options. You got Hawk Grip, so .NET slash Hawk Grips, and also .NET slash Edge. And you can get tools there as well. But they also have way more than just tools. They've got how to get to use Google Apps as your EMR. Uh, blood flow restriction cuffs. There's a lot of research on that device. And you can check that episode from the past. And you can get an automatic 10% discount on all the products from the Edge Mobility Equipment. Uh, one of the devices I use to to send out snippets of the podcast via picture and uh, quotes from the text that I write from the show notes is Missing Letter. They just took out the last E in letter.com. Pretty much, you know, you can do a blast in, in two months, you know, like five emails over two months. I like to do nine emails over 12 months. So that person who was interviewed last month doesn't just get lost, right? You know, so every day I have a new episode at a highlight and it's all automated. It's really cool. Definitely check it out. Uh, if you need to record your screen, I like Screencast-O-Matic. Also, JLab Audio Speakers. I've said it before. I love them. Uh, it's a great company. And now I get to actually be an affiliate for them. So if you end up buying any of their products, just like any of these, I get a little piece. I uh, probably have like three or four different products. I mean, they're just the battery life's are longer. Sounds quality is amazing. Uh, and for the price, it can't. Love it a bunch. And of course, in the show notes, anytime you see a book link, you buy it, it comes to me. And .net slash t-shirts will help us out. And lastly, again, something I don't talk about too much, but if you need coaching, whether it's via the Today's Choices, Tomorrow's Health, you need some help with taking those small steps and accountability so that you can actually lose the weight or start exercising more or get your budget in order, just let me know. I can help with that. Also, if you just need some minor marketing coaching or things like that, I can help you out with that as well. Just go to .net slash support. And of course, on there, you can also buy the host a cup of coffee or uh, even more than that. There's different options available. So. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week or on the mini-sode. We just went hashtag behind the curtain. I hope you will listen and integrate what some of these guests have said. By all means, please share across your social media, write a review, and if you go to the show notes page, you can find all the references for today's guest. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trosclair, giving you a doctor's perspective.